Hello, everybody. This is Dwayne Newstater and Tony Tressel. And our guest today is Christian Schultz, joining us on Tree Actions, the human forestry podcast, where people of the trees talk about their experiences, not only uh, professionally being part of trees, but also how trees has affected their lives personally. And uh, Christian, want to welcome you to uh, to this episode. And uh, you know, we always kind of kick off by asking people where they feel their journey into the trees kind of began. That, like, if you trace back, where where did it kind of start for you? Man, it started before I knew it started. Have you ever had guests, or have you experienced anything like <laughs> that? It started long before I really knew it started. Absolutely. And, it kind of started directly out of high school. I joined the United States Navy and I did four years with the United States Navy. I was stationed on board Battleship Missouri and that's when I discovered leadership and that not all my leaders were all that great, but some of them were stellar and I remember their teachings to this day. And when I say that my career in our border culture probably started before I knew it, when somebody thrust a piece of rope in my hands and said, here, Schultz, master this move, and wanted me to fold the line in a certain direction with the working end, palms up in my right hand. And I didn't have the vocabulary for what he was teaching me to do, but he was teaching me to speed tie a bowline. Right. And, and so I did that. And for, for days and days and days. And he said, you know, come in, we had lots of time at sea. One time I didn't see land for 92 straight days. Wow. And, oh, oh yeah, it, it was fun. But I would practice this move with a length of line and it was kind of like a wax on wax off deal where it wasn't going to reveal, the, you know, the end result wasn't going to reveal itself for some time. But I practiced right. this move over and over and over. And then he said, now take it to this level and this level. And pretty soon I had a bowline in my hand, an end line fixed loop. And I could do it in a blur. I could do it in about two seconds. And yeah. I still didn't know much of its practical application, but after I, and I learned a lot of notes, a lot of knots, and I ended up on, um, you know, constructing a knot board, a big, beautiful, um, decorative and functional knot board they were bragging rights and they've been in, they've been, you know, in use, people have been doing them for centuries, displaying yeah. their knots and things like that. And I was on the team that, um, that built this elaborate knot board. I don't know where it is to this day. It was big as a pool table and it had wow. working models on it. It had davits and it had a rescue kit on it. And it was, it was just gorgeous. The thing was a work of art. It took first place in this huge fleet contest, but all that to say that that's when I first discovered Ashley's book of knots and started, you know, taking uh -huh. a fascination with knots. When I got into our Bora culture, I didn't immediately draw the correlation between our Bora culture and the nautical arts. But after a few weeks, someone, I, I was like, well, how do you do this move? And I want to learn to climb. And I'm seeing that you're tying branches off to lower them. And they said, well, you got to tie a running bowl in. And I started thinking and I started remembering and after watching them do it, I was like, oh, I tapped into my old teachings from Chief Campbell when I was in the Navy. And I just went. And there it was running bowling. And it was about five seconds. And they asked me, how did you do that? 
And I said, well, <laughs> I just kind of re- remembered. <laughs> I know that my muscles don't have brains, but I guess you might attribute it to the neural pathway running from my brain to my hands, and it just obeyed yeah. the command. And nice. after that, I started drawing a correlation. Uh, I, I remember saying out loud, all of this is nautical in origin. We rigged ships for centuries before we ever rigged trees. Yep. But I was roundly rejected for that, for being because I was the greenie. So they flushed that perspective right away. And then later on, you know, five or six years down the road, I took a one-day class with Ken Palmer. And Ken had said, everything we do in the industry is, is nautical in origin. Mm-hmm. A, a GRCS is a cabin top winch just mounted horizontally. And his perspective on things was really validating. And I have not let go of that since. Mm-hmm. That. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I agree. And, you know, not only that, I think it, it, it's been suggested it goes even so far as, as the trees connection, not just the ships, but the building of the ships, which required careful lowering of sections of trunk in order to build the masts and then lifting them onto and installing them on the galleons. That all was rope and rigging work. Yes. uh, You know, and and that's the true origins of arboriculture. I truly believe Like you know, and, and, you know, even back then it wasn't just about, you know, the, the history talks about the war machines and the galleons and the cannons, but people were living and enjoying gardens and trees as well. And there were people of affluent, you know, they may have been kings and noblemen of whatever, and, you know, but they were, they had gardens and they had people caring for those gardens and trees. And so I think there was a strong correlation with, between the, those arts and that part of history kind of got lost. You know, that's talked about how, especially in Europe after the world wars, like the connection, the ancient connection between arbor culture and those, those tradesmen, that who knows in you know weekend work is pruning trees for the king and during the week you're building ships for him you know like who knows you know yes and while it, maybe to a lesser extent the equestrian arts as well is it, mm. it, it it's a rope discipline if you can't i mean if you can't secure your horse out in the desert to some suitable anchor point you will die and <laughs> and so they Equestrians have been using tension fibers to perform tasks that were absolutely critical True. for hundreds of years, too. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's a very good point. I not to mention those, those noblemen could whip up a clove hitch in a blurred manner. Yeah, and, and, and animal husbandry and fishermen as well. Farmers and fishermen, you know, no stranger to, the, to, to ropes and knots either. The bow and arrow and weaponry. Right. Of course. And a heck, I guess you can go all the way back to the pyramids, right? <laughs> yes. All of that, predi- you know, between fire and tension fibers, we would not be here. That's, that's true. Yeah, you know, that's an interesting concept. Wood, rope, and fire. Man, those three things probably make it. That's pretty pivotal, isn't it? It is. And all of which predated Christ by hundreds of thousands of years. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. When I started, wow, when, I started in, um, when I started in 1991, I, ad, I answered an ad for a climber, and I got this person on the phone, and he said, "I'm sorry, we are looking for someone that is actively, you know, trained in climbing." And I was with my aunt, my aunt Terry, and she she said, "You know, the short story is, he was he was not giving me a yes; he was telling me no and being as polite as he could, and I wasn't taking no for an answer." 
And she said, well, it only stands to reason if there's climbers, they need people on the ground running brush to a chipper or something like that. And she said, you just, you just tell him if he doesn't hire you, his whole day is going to suck. And he said, <laughs> you don't hire me, your whole day is going to suck. And he said, look, you, no, you listen closely to me. You meet me tomorrow morning at the corner of Andersonville Road and Dixie Highway at the Sunoco Station. You wear long pants, bring gloves, pack your lunch, and don't be late. <laughs> and that was that was in 1991. I think about five or six years ago, I paid that person's way into um, into TCIA Expo. <laughs> So wow. that when it all comes back full circle, um, they were uh, the people that I first worked with. There was two owners, and it was a small company, a truck and chipper, and a bucket truck that was down a lot of the time. But they were Jehovah's Witnesses, and that was that was important to me because of their their faith and the conducts the conduct that was expected of them. They never shouted. They never swore. They never lost their heads when things went wrong. Mm. And that meant a lot to me because I'd had enough of that explosive type leadership when I was in the military. And mm. sometimes what I was seeing out on deck when leaders would have this, this absolute diarrhea moments of explosive name calling like they were surrounded by ip- idiots i was like you know something in in me said that's not leadership and yet i have no recourse against that kind of leadership and so it made me you know being in the navy as much as it was a wonderful experience i became very very sensitive to leadership styles so it meant a lot to me to come into the industry not knowing anything and seeing the level of patience that it took to train me just to become an adequate ground person where I knew how to gas and oil saws without mixing the components up and um, how to tie knots, how to clear things, how to get the working ends back to them to continue their their work. And mm. they were very, very patient with me. And then about six months later, they hired a guy named Brian and Brian already knew how to climb. He didn't have a driver's license, so I had to drive. And he was really, really abusive. Um, and so that changed the way I felt about a lot of things. And he was also, he had just done some time. So he was, um, he was pretty rough around the edges and I was willing to fight. I'm like, no, 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 no. Wait a second. This isn't anything that you beat me up for. This is, I, you don't get it. And he was like, no, you don't get it. And you've been under the little wing of these Jehovah's Witnesses and they, like, they've been all candy coating and that's not the reality of, of tree work. So he schooled me to the realities of tree work, all right. And we ended up at each other's throats for a long time. And he threatened me with violence on a weekly basis. And that was, th- that was very difficult for me, but my family was very supportive and they kept saying, don't quit, don't quit. No matter what you do, don't quit. If you quit, he wins. So right. I just just never let him win. And at one point they put us together and they said, you know, clearly there's some issues between the two of you and we're going to have to resolve them. And, you know, we were at breakfast one morning and they said, Brian, we'll let you go first. And Brian said, you just don't listen. You don't listen to anything I say. You just go off and do your own thing. And he vented and it wasn't real co- cohesive. And then, then it came my turn. And that's where I <laughs> 
I said, Brian, you know, you're teaching me at a kindergarten level and I have some foundation. He says, oh, yeah, what kind of foundation do you have? And that's when I just told him, you know, I did four years in the United States Navy. I circumnavigated planet Earth twice. I've worked under the leadership of Navy SEALs who never lost, who were a lot tougher than you, and they never lost their cool. They provided strict direction that I needed, and they saw what my needs were as far as, is that clear to you, Schultz? Can you repeat back to me? They just knew how to lead. And and I said, and you know, one day, Brian, you know what's going to happen? I'm going to climb circles around you someday. And I always want you to remember that on the outside, when you tell me, go do this and go do that and take care of this and take care of these and fill up the water and don't forget the saws and you're bossing me around that on the outside, I'm always going to do everything that you want me to do probably faster than you expect me to do. And on the inside, as far as you being my leader, you're fired. And And on the outside, all you're going to see is my smile and I'm going to do everything you say. Yes, Brian. Yes, Brian. Yes, Brian. That's what I'm going to do. And on the inside, you're fired. Brian, I, Brian, I think, um, I think Brian's dead. Right. Right. (laughs) Yeah. It's, uh, you know, how much of, uh, it's, we, we talk about a little bit, we've got into it with a couple of people on the, on the show, but like, uh, you know, how much of that, um, personality or dysfunction i don't know what the right word is but uh is part of this industry do you, it does is it any different than any other industry do you think christian or does the arboriculture somehow attract that thrill-seeking addictive type personality person and then you know is there more of them is there less of them is it the way it's always been like i'm curious what your thoughts are on that well, I think that leadership models have changed. Everybody calls themselves a trainer now, and I don't. I don't say that to, the, to disparage the training sector whatsoever. But I think that people know that there are other leadership models available to them. And today's today's working. I think the younger generation, many people in my generation, I consider myself a little older now. I was so fortunate to have seen so much in this industry, 32 years, and not all of them good years in terms of my track record and such. But right. somebody somebody in the industry, somebody in tree care said, today's youth does not accept hard leadership anymore. They, they know that they can go somewhere else for a different leadership model. So all right. the screaming, shouting, swearing, demanding, down talk, all of that is falling by the wayside. And leaders are now challenged to find a different approach to get the results that they want. And I'm not saying we should soften up or that kids are mamby-pamby or they don't know how good they've got it. I'm not saying any of that, that kids are, the younger generation is wise. They know they don't have to put up with it. They don't. They Mm -hmm. They can go somewhere else or they can stand up to a leader and say, that's not working for me. We had Don Blair on the show and he, he was talking a little bit about, uh, you know, how there seems to be a lot of, uh, I guess, younger people, the newer generation that, you know, work for a, a short period of time, relatively speaking, you know, like they wouldn't, they wouldn't endure what you went through, you know, with Brian, uh, you know, they, and not and and you know I understand that they're they're wiser now. Maybe they don't need to because people aren't that way. But 
But they, you know, I got the impression from them that, and I may be wrong, Tony, correct me if you, if I understood it incorrectly, but that they're, they're almost leaving too soon. You know, they're too aware to say, you know, and they, and they're, they're these, you know, uh, people, a lot of, much more common to only after very few years, less than 10 at a company, they're starting their own traveling Wilbury show and their one man operation. And they're like this hired gun, you know, they're like a top gun. And they have this grandiose almost attitude of, you know, you hire me, you pay me this, and I'll go somewhere else if you don't want me. And and he's and his concern was I found quite interesting was who's mentoring these kids, who's who's continuing them on their journey when they're on their own, you know, who who's providing that leadership when you got these independent contractors. Which, what do what do you, did I get that right, Tony? Was that kind of the gist of it? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and I've seen it too. Like it's the standard pattern is, is you work at a place and you leave there for whatever reason. A lot of times to Christian's point, it's poor leadership um, or no leadership or you're put in a position to be the leader, but you've never been given leadership training. But for whatever reason, you leave and you go out on your own and now you're a subcontract climber and you might have a decent skill set. But every time you show up on the job, you're the top dog. There's nobody to learn from anymore. And I think a lot of these guys form some some pretty poor work habits and you know they might have a good skill set but i think to don's point was how's it going to grow if you're if you're always the best guy no matter what your skill level is you're the best guy on the crew you're never going to learn anything because i mean and i saw it in my own career i was always very fortunate to be able to work with some of the best arborists in the world and i just learned to shut up and listen and and learn you know like but i was fortunate so i think that's where don was coming from yeah man when about about four I went unchallenged as the best climber at a company for a little over a year. And you start to believe yourself. You start to believe others. People <clears> ask <throat> questions. And I got ego boosts from so many people. And then I went to work for my friend Jim Rudolph in South Bend, Indiana. And that was a life-changing experience for me. I had four or five years experience. And I was climbing. I was climbing spurless. I wasn't yet footlocking, but I was climbing spurless. This was in 1994, 1995. And um, I never wore a helmet, didn't wear any head protection, one-handed every chainsaw cut that I made, really didn't wish to hear any training or, you know, because I wanted to be the top person. I already knew I was. I was so certain of myself. (laughs) And (laughs) then one day he approached me and on a job site after I hit the ground. I had been laying down the butt ends of these piles of brush doing a big removal. And I would make separate piles with the butt ends all facing the gate opening. I would make individual piles that were about big enough for a tough ground guy to grab up the whole thing and go. And I thought that was, you know, I had a CDL. I had an A with air. I thought I, and I behaved like I owned the company. And he approached me and he said, I have to let you go. And I was stunned. I was like, I was like, you can't be serious. And he said, yes, I have to let you go. And I said, what, did you run out of work? And he said, no, I didn't run out of work. You're my biggest risk taker. You're my next worker's compensation case. I know exactly how this ends. You're going to cut yourself or you're going to fall because I free climbed everything. Oh, I free climbed for years. But I'm but I'm Christian Michael Schultz. What could possibly go wrong? (laughs) And I I believed myself. I was stunned. And he said, you know, 
you're on you fall into this category, Christian. I've seen guys like you before. Yes, you have, you know, he said, I only have three years more in service than you do, but I have seen this many, many times. And yeah. I know how this ends. You're going to cut yourself or you're going to fall and we're going to have to pay for it. I'm going to try to put my kids through college with this company. And you're the only thing standing between me and that goal as far off as that might seem. And mm-hmm. he was laying it on the line to me. And I said, but you know what? I, I have, I'm the only CDL here and you're a CDL dependent. He said, I will drive these guys down the road in my trucks illegally before I'll have you on site for another day. Because... And he said, at the end of the day, just go home. And he said, you know, last week I'm trying to coach you through this move. And I said, Christian, if you would just turn your body 45 degrees to your left, your life will be so much easier and you can keep both hands on that chainsaw. And you were like, that. You just reached over, one-handed it all out while other people are on the ground and they think that you're a god because you can (laughs) climb trees and make sticks. But you know what else, Christian? Your climbing sucks. <laughs> I was floored. I could not believe what I was hearing. But sure enough, at the end of the day, I went home and I started writing, your climbing sucks on a sheet of paper. And the phone rang and it was Jim Rudolph. And he said, this is not a conversation. I just want you to listen. If you can come back to my company and obey all of my safety directives and always wear chaps and always wear a helmet and put your shirt on when you're working. <laughs> you Oh, yeah. I had long hair, dude. I had a killer mullet. You should have seen me, Dwayne. I was deadly looking. It was Christian Michael Schultz. I had all the answers. And he said, if you can obey all my directives, you can have your job back. And um, uh-huh. he said, but the first time I see you one-handing a chainsaw, free climbing, climbing, you know, cutting without chaps, as soon as you get outside of this little box, I'm not going to say a word to you. I'm going to tape your last paycheck to the windshield of your car, and you will know that that is the end of us, and I have to go right now because I could be bidding more work, but it, no, I'm on the phone once again trying to talk you into being safer. <laughs> and man, he hit me square over the head. And the next day I went in and I got so focused in on safety. I, to me, it was ridiculous. And to me, he wasn't going to make any money, but he kept saying, I have bid this work comfortably so that we can do our work safely. I've bid it at a profit. So don't worry about how, how long it takes you. And I had a lot of adjusting to do, but fast forward 10 years, I do training at his company. He's one of my customers now. <laughs> but that was yeah. that was pivotal. That and moving on into the competition circuit was a big game changer for me. Right, right. It, you know, it's a common theme we hear too, where the competition was like almost a direct, like Tony talks about it as it was a direct line to like the renaissance of his entire career, really. Like it was for a lot of us, you know. And you know, Christian, listening to your story, I have to say, you know, I I never thought of it quite in that way. I, I, I mean, yeah, hard hat. I I worked for a long time, no hard hat, uh, never tied in. I, I I was fortunate enough. I never free climbed. Well, that's not true. It was climb to the top and tie in, and try yes, not to yeah, try not to cut too many things on the way up. If you have to, you have to. But I never was tied in until I got up to the top as high as I could go. Yeah, I think that's what was was climbing unsecured. Yeah, right, right. Okay, yeah. And then I would, you know, even retying, like pull your rope out to move it, 
you know, like the whole content. I remember the first time I went to a comp and I'd never seen throw line. I never was in, it was when it was in Bismarck, North Dakota. And, uh, you know, I thought I was pretty, I'm going to show these people. And that was, you know, Ken, that was his second win, I think. Right. And I'm watching these guys going, what the frick are they doing? Holy shit. And, uh, and then throw line, I just, you know, actually, I think I got damn third or some stupid thing in throw line because I got lucky. But then it came to the work climb, you know, before there was a work, like it was just the, the climb where you had to throw in and I could not, you got five shots, right. And I'm on the, I'm on my last chance, ditch the ball. I'm going my own way and I can't free climb. And all that's in my head is I can just climb to the top of this thing and work this tree. This is no problem. But you idiots need me to be tied in. What the hell is this? So I, you know, I started this brutal ascent with the lanyard, you know, like one over trying to figure out how not to ever be detached. And I was so pissed off, you know, but it was like, okay, obviously it's doable. Cause then you watch these guys do it. And uh, yeah, it, it's quite a, it, it is it really, I don't know why Christian, I've heard others talk about it, but you really brought me back to remembering those times and how much there is we've changed, you know, and to learn. <laughs> Tony, you, I mean, I don't know if you ever did that, Tony, like you, did you ever like, no, I was very fortunate through my father's influence and my older brother's influence too. They were very much on the, the front curve of all that. Um, so I, I learned, you know, to tie in all the time. I, I mean, the closest you would get is occasionally if you were like, you might like you always at least have a lanyard, like you'd lanyard up. You might not tie mm -hmm. in with a climbing system, but I was, I was very, very fortunate, um, in that my instructors were always rather, rather excellent. I didn't really have to, to learn the hard way, um, on a, on a lot of, huh. a lot of stuff. Interesting. Yeah. Well, Christian, I didn't know that. I didn't know that, that, that man, like what a gift, uh, he gave you, you know, and, and, and laying it on like that for you, you know, like, and, and that you responded to it too, that you had the, the wherewithal to, to take it and, and move and grow from it. Where do you think you get that from? Like how did, like a lot of people would say F you and start their own business. Well, I guess, would you repeat the question, Dwayne? Help me out with that one well, just you know, a, a lot bit. of people, a lot of people would take that type of situation and the place they're at in their career with confidence. I can do removals. I know how to stack brush. I know how to lay the butts one way. You don't want me around? Fine. I got to, I'm going to borrow money for a chainsaw and pick up and I'm going to friggin' put you out of business. You watch and start their own. Like that, that's very common. And you, you thought was... about it, went back and decided to try it his way. Like what? That's that's very interesting. Well, I I think I, it comes back to I think I drew back from um, when I was at, when I was in the Navy. There were certain leaders when they said something. They demanded that I took it at face value and that I did it exactly the way they said to do so. And I didn't like the way that they treated me. So it was kind of like. I hate being told what to do, so I'm looking for what needs to be done. They, they would say things like, there's no reason in the world this compartment should ever have this much trash in it, and don't ever let this trash can fill more than one-third of the way up. And I just never did. I didn't like the way they spoke to me, so w when the trash cans reached a certain point, I was emptying them out. I was staying, I was working harder at staying one step ahead of them 
and looking for the the light at the end of the tunnel, the why behind that later on. And um, Brian, back to Brian, I hated, I couldn't stand the way he spoke to me. We go into McDonald's, Dwayne, and there could be 50 people standing in line and he would shout above all of them. If he was in the back of the line, just as I was getting ready to order my food, he'd say, get it to go, Schultz. And I sure didn't like that. And I got it to go. I got it to go every single day. I got it to go. Every time I got in that line, I never sat down to eat my meal. I always got it to go. I always ate on the road. Right. It was driven by the by the wrong things. I hated the way he spoke to me. So I just got it to go. And it was one less thing he was going to be bossing me around on. So that sort of um, mentally, that sort of informed the way I would follow when I'm in the follower position. And so when Jim told me, always tied in, always wearing chaps, always with head protection, always with glasses on. I didn't want to bother him by having to address PPE issues over and over and over with me. So I got on board very quickly and I stuck it out. And no, I, you know, as far as starting another business and competing with him, I wasn't that interested in being a business owner and I didn't have the resources. He had built up clientele. He ruled South Bend. To this day, he's the premier company in South Bend, Indiana. Right. So it, right. as far as going in the opposite direction, um, I sort of was by just getting on board and doing everything the way the way that he wanted me to do it. That meant you know, a lot to me. Yeah, interesting. To this day, I do. So uh, talk to us a little bit about your uh, the journey in the... Uh the comp man i did my first competition in michigan in um in 1997 it's where i met my buddy vince kowalski he was a union climber for aspland at the time and he was really really good and um i had taken a one-day course with ken palmer a year and a half before that when i was with jim rudolph and he made me pay for it and on a payroll deduction, but I did it, you know, and he said, I just think this information is going to stick to you a lot better if you pay for it yourself, Christian. And I said, okay, Jim. And I, I paid for it and he took it out of my paychecks over the course of three weeks. It was lean. It was, it was tight, man. I didn't make a lot of money, there. but, um, but it, it was, that was pivotal. And that's where I learned how to footlock. And he was like, okay, you've got all these moves down pat. He said, from here, it's just practice, 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 putting it into production so that you can see a profit from it. And shoot, in the early 90s, if you could show up on time for work, you had a driver's license, you could pack your lunch, and you could footlock. That meant that you could enter a tree spurless and fairly efficient. You could write your own ticket. Um, And that also informed competition because secured footlock was throw line dependent. And so I sort of had a, had a leg up by having paid $125 for a, a one day course, but yeah, yeah. I had also been pretty committed to secured footlock. And then, um, so I scored like, I, I placed like third in that event. I placed fourth overall out of 19 people that were competing and the next year, the format was unchanged and the course was unchanged. There were no changes wow. at all in work climb, aerial rescue, or belayed speed climb. So that year I did better and better and better. 
until, until eventually, six years later, I took first place. And then it was said, uh, we should probably change this course. And now <laughs> leaving anything the same outside of an ascent type event is just out of the question. Everything is going to shift as well it should. And it makes it yeah. interesting. Yeah. But when I won Michigan off to internationals, I went. And that's when I found out just what a good climber I am, Dwayne. <laughs> Not very good. <laughs> and uh, that's that's a pretty common theme for people that make it there. But yeah, I wasn't yeah. really there. I, I had some aspirations. And of course, we all dream of winning, you know, but it was more that I was going to be rubbing shoulders with cats like Chisholm, Betashtlazel, yeah. Mark Bridge. I'm, and of course, meeting all the friends that I have now. And I was just... I my life would never be the same without the comp circuit. Eventually I was no longer interested in competing. I met people like, um, like Bruce and Melissa. And every year they were taking their vacation to volunteer at international tree climbing championship, which is held in a different location every year. And I just could not believe it. I was like, let me get this straight. You take the whole week off to volunteer at this event. And they said, yeah. And we get CEUs, we get our continuing educational units, we we benefit from the building of relationships. And I've been friends with them ever since. And that's been 20 years this year. Yeah, they're great. That's where I met Bruce. Bruce did my first gear inspection. Bruce Smith did my first gear inspection. Right. Yeah, yeah. He, and oh, Bruce, you know, I don't know if Bruce ever did did Bruce compete? He must have. Or did he always, he must have competed. Don't know if he competed. I know that he was an official and he oh, yeah. um, and he inspected my gear in Montreal. You guys were the, yeah. you guys were both in Montreal, weren't you? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. yeah. You might have been yeah, yeah. competing. No, I, I wasn't. I was judge, that was my first, I think that was my first time head judge of aerial rescue, I think. Oh, yeah. It was on the, yeah. I was on the aerial rescue in Montreal, too, because I was working with Greg Good. We were cranking the dummy up into the tree with the GRCS. Yeah. And I learned I learned about the GRCS from like the man himself. No, it was awesome. Like, yeah, there's I mean, people often I often get asked, you know, how do you you know, how do you become a trainer in this industry or where do I get good training as comps? And I'm like, the best bang for your buck is a tree climbing competition, hands down. Um, best bang for your buck for any type of training. Um, are you gonna I mean, you'll go there and you'll learn some specific skills. Mostly you'll learn what you don't know. And then you'll pick up really fast on how on how to get that knowledge. And then just like the networking and the people um, that come with being part of the ITCC is just phenomenal. There's just no. Dude, I think you were hiding out in my gear bag when I first started going there because that was precisely my experience. <laughs> learning what I didn't know, learning oh, that yeah. I wasn't, how humbling and how helpful it can be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't. People that have never competed don't understand the power of like being in the top of a work climb tree and watching someone like Mark Chisholm climb it. And then you do it like within minutes after he does. And then you hit the ground. You're like, Mark, how did you? And you ask him, you can't replace that type of training um, or or information. There's no other way. I mean, of all the training courses I've done, I can't replicate that. You know, Um, it's just and and it's and when you look at what it costs to go to a chapter level competition, you're going to compete. It's cheap, man. It's like, it is the best bang for the buck. It really is. Yeah. 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 And, and, you know, the fact that they are so variable, like, I mean, I know that people get frustrated with, you know, they're, you know, especially on so many chapter levels, like the setup is like, 
one frantic day of that's the best we could do, you know, and, and it's, it's, it's certainly less than what happens at the international, but it's still so much of a benefit. And regardless of how, um, you know, it, it always, there's always room for improvement, but it, but yeah, like you said, Tony, like, you know, you just can't, it, it, it's really a weird thing because you just can't really pay people to, uh, to do that kind of thing, <laughs> you know, I think it would, it would somehow corrupt it, you know, it somehow, I don't know. It's weird. It's a, uh, it's a real interesting uh, phenomenon and it's a, you know, a kind of an organism that's unto itself. And, uh, you know, there's a, there's a political aspect to it being, being at, being part of that association and everything. And, you know, I don't know where the future of it's going to go because I think there's a lot of, a lot of changes happening, you know, the grassroots of that organization, how it started and to where it's going now. I don't know what the future is going to hold with it. I know that I haven't been as, as, as involved and maybe that's just a function of age and everybody cycles through like my, my, my tree climbing tree forest is uh, my, I'm a, I'm a bit of a log or a stump in that forest nowadays, as opposed to a part of the canopy maybe, but I'm still, still there, but maybe one day I'll get, uh, get back involved a little bit. We'll see. But, uh, you know, the, the comp is, uh, I don't know. I, I really, I find the, the, uh, I don't know. It's, there's a, I don't know what the word is. Like if it's spiritual or if it's a, a consciousness that develops with the group of people that go and the fact that everyone's there volunteering, they, everyone is a servant of sorts because no one's paid, you know, some people get expenses covered a little bit and that type of thing, but fundamentally it's a labor of love. And I think that's what gives it its, uh, its appeal and, uh, what you can tap into. And, and, uh, you know, it, it, it's rare exception. I don't think there is anyone there that wouldn't freely give of, of their knowledge or time or help anyone. If, if even only asked, that's all you need to do. It's a very unique, you know, I was at the world surfboard championships by fluke. I, I managed to be in, in turtle Bay on our way back from the, the New Zealand chapter, we I was speaking down there and our flight took us through Honolulu. So we just stayed there for a week, you know, and, and the surfboard championships were happening to be on the worlds. And uh, it was the only time I realized what it must be like to be at the tree climbing championships for a stranger. Because there I was standing on the beach and I'm watching the cameras and the, the surfboards are going on and I'm standing beside this guy and I just start talking to him. And I'm like... So, and he's, he's teaching me everything they're doing, what they're marking them on and how it's going. I could tell the guy knows his stuff and not 10 minutes later, I look over and he's in front of these cameras and he's being interviewed, you know, on TSN and all this stuff. And these people come over and say, man, how do you know so-and-so? Right. And I'm like, oh, I, I don't, I was just, oh, you know, they thought I knew him because he was the current champion. And I'm sitting there just having, shooting the shit with them on the beach, like, and he's talking to me like I'm, you know, no big deal. And I knew that, and I'm like, wow, this is like, because the same thing could happen at an ITCC. Somebody could just walk through the park, walk up to Bert, Bent, Bettis or, or to Mark or anybody that, and just, they'd talk to him and tell him about the event and have no clue they're talking to the nine-time champion, right? Like, <laughs> And uh, there I was talking. To, I don't even know the guy's name, but I know he was a defending world surfboard champion. And he was telling me about the event. <laughs> and, uh, 
And I mean, that kind of a, I did, I, you know, it's not unique to just tree climbing because I, I saw it there at the surfboard championship and the family atmosphere that was around the people. It's when everyone's doing something they love and not doing it for the money. You know, I think there's something in that. Yeah. I think if, I think if it, it I think the ITCC almost always has to be a volunteer um, thing. Like, and I, it never bothered me to volunteer for the 21 years I volunteered. I never once begrudged the time, um, the time that I, that I, that I volunteered. I, I never had an issue with that. I've had some issues with expenses and just different things, hoops that you would jump through here and there. And I think Dwayne, you and I talked about the ITCC probably when it was in Washington, DC, where we kind of equated it to, it's like an old tree. Right. And I think the ITCC as it stands now is probably in decline, but I think that I think something will take its place. Um, I don't know what that's going to look like or how it's going to work. And the ITCC is going to be around for a while, but I think something else is going to spring up, is going to sprout to life and and start to take its place and rebuild it. Because it has, like all things, like an old tree, you know, they don't live forever. Um, You know, it has its growth patterns and it had its peak. And I think it might be declining just a little bit, but that's fine too, because. If that tree never declines and and then turns back to the soil, then new trees can't grow, right? So, I don't, I don't, I don't look, I don't look on it nostalgically or sad. I look on it more as just the the, the process of basically like an evolution of. And I, I look forward. I hope I'm around to see still involved in the industry enough to see what the ITCC can turn into, because um, it's a phenomenal. Yeah. I mean, like I said, it's just from on a personal on a personal thing for me, it was phenomenal because, you know, like you, Christian, I got out of the military you know, right out of high school, got out of the military. And I don't I think what affected me most was I'd, I'd lost. I was now no longer had a hive. I didn't have a tribe anymore. Yeah. You know, I was I lived and worked with a group of men. We did everything together. You know, I was very rarely alone for four years was I was, was never alone. And then I suddenly get out and like, I needed a new tribe and I found that in tree work and I found that specifically directly through the tree climbing competitions. Um, and I You've think written that about that quite a lot too, haven't you, yeah, Tony? Yeah, absolutely. Cause I think that of all the things that affected me, you know, when I got out of the service, having served in the Persian Gulf and all, all that, I think what affected me the most was that loss of community. Um, yeah. you know, cause I mean, well, you know, Chris, you're like, I, we went and took a crap together. We did everything together. Like it just, yeah. it's, I mean, I was never, ever alone. If I ever wanted to do something, I just looked to my right and said, Hey, and we did, you know, and then that all changed literally overnight um, for me. And I'm just wandering around like, what the hell am I going to do? And, you know, cause I let, I joined the army. So I didn't have to be an arborist, <laughs> you know, like I was trying to get away <laughs> from it and, uh, and then found it coming back because I needed that sense of community. And I think that when, when you really try and describe the ITCC and what arboriculture is at its best as an industry, you, you have to describe it as a tribe. That's a great way to put it. You know, we have all, not only did each of us find home in a way when we attended in any capacity, but it's so interesting going back now and seeing people walk around in disbelief saying, I never knew it was going to be like this. I had no, no idea I would find home on Mm. the circuit among other competitors. I had no idea that another competitor would hand me a component that I needed to compete. I had no idea that others would help me out. I wasn't ready for this. Many people leave in tears. Yep. No, no, you're right. You know, and now we're touching on the, you know, to me, kind of the true essence of, you know, kind of the inspiration behind this whole thing, you know, speaking of the human forest, 
you know, and, and talking about how it's affected us professionally, but personally, you know, and, and here we are, you know, we're it's not spirit. talking really about arboriculture. We are, but we're talking about how it's affected our lives and what it's brought to us, you know, what meaning and purpose it's brought to us, that connection through trees, you know, as, as, as people as, and personally. And it, it's really, uh, I don't know that everyone always, I don't know, maybe it's an age thing or, or a state of life thing where you're able to start to recognize that or articulate that, you know, that you can appreciate the, uh, um, I don't know, it's the spiritual side or the esoteric side of what oh, it's deeply what this industry brings. Just call it yeah. like it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, I don't know if it's what it is. I, I don't know if it's the trees or what, but I, it's, the trees are part of it. It's it, it just something there. I don't, it's really strange. You know, I don't, you know, like I said, I, I've only experienced a similarity with that, at that so those surfboard championships, but I don't know many industries that, you know, and that isn't even a career really, I suppose. Like it's not a job. You can't surf for a living. I don't think maybe some people do, Yeah, but, but you, tree work yeah. is like a job that, transcends into this other realm of you know trees and oceans have a lot more in common than than trees and carpentry or plumbing maybe so to speak i always i always seem to pick on carpenters and plumbers i don't like to do that either because but you know what i mean i don't know if that makes sense i think no matter what you do you can find purpose in it and it that purpose can be spiritual maybe based on any number of things, the people that you work with, for example, but our Bora culture is a hotbed of people that find the spiritual connection in, in, in their work, if you even want to call it work. When you think about it, we get to run around out in the woods with our friends and make big sticks into little sticks. And <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, well, I think the fact true. that I think the fact that what we work on, the trees are living and growing changes yeah. it, right? If you build a bridge, yeah. it's, it stays the same for however long that bridge lasts. And that doesn't mean it doesn't have purpose, but you know, I've, I've having worked at the family business for, you know, 30 years, we occasionally, I go back in to visit with the crews and they're on a property and I'm like, I can see that a tree I climbed 25 years ago and, you know, and just to walk up and touch it. And, and you know, now a lot of these trees that are on their second or third owner, you know, I occasionally come across clients and I meet their children and they're grown now. And I knew their children when oh, they were, wow. you know, and it's, and it's all, it, I think the fact that the tree itself changes and grows, um, and that's what we work on is, is vital to the, to that spiritual, that spiritual side of it. I think it would be different if we were carving stone or pouring concrete and not to belittle those things, it's all important. I just think that the fact that what we work on grows and changes demands us to to look at it differently because if we didn't we just cut them all down right you just cut them all down like want to remove the hazard cut it down you know but it's right. not it's not like that it has intrinsic value in and of itself even without us right i think that for me at least has been the has been the the changing point and i don't know if i think that i've always been able to i think i've always sensed that in that sense of community but i think you're right Twain. i think there's a certain perspective that comes with having done the work for 20 plus years 30 plus years for all of us that allows us to articulate it better and to appreciate it right maybe when i was 20 hell i didn't know i just needed beer money and uh and a job you know but it, but I, I was fortunate that yeah. i fell into the one i did so so that's an interesting you know i was just thinking about as you said that like i i think of somebody that you know, they're like someone that's been, 
a, a plumber or a carpenter or been a shipbuilder or a bridge builder or been that for a decade or two. You know, I I think maybe something happens in them too. And like, it's like the, it's like a, in our interview with Wenda, when she just knew that she had found what she wanted to do, you know, she climbed that tree and she was trying to qualify for a, for a training thing or, and, and she got to the top of this test climb that they had and she just knew this is it, you know? And I think that, that I think can happen for people in different vocations, you know, like, or I think that's what makes it a vocation when you reach that point. And when like, that, that, that's something that I just thought of, like, when do you feel you, Tony or Christian, when do you feel that happen for you? Like, when did it, when did you get the moment? Can you remember when it was like, okay, this, this is it. This is what I'm meant to do. Or did, did you feel you found that? At my, at my first company, the first time I saw some someone rappel out of a tree on a taunt line hitch, yeah. I knew that that's what I was going to do and there was nothing that was going to stop me. I just didn't think it would happen as quickly as it did. And it happened wow. very, very quickly for me. Like within a, within a couple of months, I was climbing actively. I wasn't very good, but I was still climbing. <laughs> and then, of course, there were pivotal moments along along the route that led me right, here. Right. But but and there's so that funny, one where you person? just where, yeah sorry there's that one where you just know you know and Tony like did it must have happened for you at some point because I mean you talk openly you know I'm always interesting and it's kind of what made me think of it here like you talk about you didn't want to be a part of it you went into the military and then you're out of the military and now it's like shit this is all that's there but yet here you are clearly passionate and and you know fully involved in this this business. So do you know where, did you have that feeling at some point? Uh, probably not as clear cut as many people. Cause like I said, I got, I got out of the army and then I started doing other things and I went to school and I got my degree, but all that time I was working with my brother and quite honestly, the work was fine, but it was easy and he needed help. Right. Like it, I didn't have to fill a job application. You know, it was super flexible. Like, you know, Ben would be like, Hey Tony, can you work, you know, this week, your spring break? Like, sure. If I said yes, great. If not, so it was the easy button for me through, um, through college. But then there was a point where, you know, you can't, you know, I'm now like 28. Um, you know, I, I have a, a, a reasonable skill set in tree care, but I also have a military yeah. service by me. You got to do something with your life, right? Like I didn't want to, and basically really the reason I said yes and, and chose tree as a tree care as a career was because my brother needed the help and I didn't want to leave him behind. You know, he'd, he had given me something when I needed it. And, uh, and I, and so I, I can literally to this day, remember sitting down saying, all right, Ben, I'll work. Cause he offered me a job when it, cause when you get out of, you leave Penn state with a degree in philosophy, there's not a lot of employment options. Um, so <laughs> he's like, and, and I remember I said, yeah, Ben, you know, I'll do this for a couple of years then I'll find something else. And in that couple of years, I gave it to help my brother out somewhere along the line. I realized that it was the tribe that I was looking for. Um, and right. that was through, you know, cause he, I very much like Christian, they sent me, I did a, you know, an Arbor master program. Um, and met with Ken and Rip. And from that, you know, like in 2000, the ITCC was in Baltimore, which was just, you know, it's just two, two hours south of the house here. And I'm like, mm -hmm. hey, Ben, and I knew Ken and Rip and Ken and Rip were involved in ITCC. And I'd known, you know, a couple people here and there. And I, I'm like, hey, Ben, can I, I just want to volunteer. I just want to go down and see if I can help out. I know Ken, I know Rip, I'm sure they can do. So I just show up and my brother's like, sure, take, the, I'll give you the days off. And so I just show up and they, you know, and that's, I just basically showed up at ITCC till they just either didn't tell me to leave um, and gave me a job. 
Like, that's all I ever did. People are like, how'd you get involved in ITCC? Literally, I just showed the fuck up and I didn't right. leave. And I showed up in 2000. I missed 2001 because we had that was Milwaukee. We had some storm damage. 2002 in Seattle, I just showed up. 2003, mm-hmm. I just I continued and eventually got to the point where Tim Bushnell was like the head tech. And I'm like, Tim, I need a job. You got to. I need some direction here. Like I'm not, I'm, cause I was working everywhere and that's when he put me on footlock and I was in the footlock tree when, you know, Mark was breaking world records and it was awesome. Yeah. 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 You know? um, there was one in, I think it was Minneapolis. You had ridden your motorcycle cross country for that event. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I that thought was... you were just like, I just worship you, dude. I thought you were one of the most charismatic, most interesting people I'd ever met. I still remember meeting you. Um, for real the first time. And that was, I think it was Minneapolis. Well, that's, that's some pretty high praise there. If uh, Christian Michael Schultz is calling me charismatic. <laughs> well, there was so many cool people, so many mm-hmm. just interesting characters across the industry. That was, that was 2006 yeah. in Minneapolis. And I rem- I always remember that was my most, um, it was the peak of my competition climbing career because I finished second um, to Jim Roach that year in the chapter. I always seem to finish second to Jim second or third or 10th, but I, I only lost, I only did not compete at the ITCC that year by like three points. I lost the master's challenge by like three points to Jim who, you know, at his peak, um, you know, com- he, ne- he never broke the top 10. I think the sixth in the world, but he never made it to the masters, but he was always like just one or two short a couple uh-huh. of times. So it's like, I, I remember I, him. Yeah, I was I, not that. So that Minneapolis was, but that was also the point in my climate career where I realized I was having more fun helping set up than I was competing. Yes. I yeah. Just, you were secured footlock that year with me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Rich Hattier. Yeah. Hattier was there. I'm trying to think who else was there. Of course, Kevin Bassett had the lead. Mm hmm. And Warren Williams was head technician that year. Yeah, sounds about right. Yeah, it's a pretty killer crew. Up until up until then, it seemed to me that the climbers were not really being introduced to the audience very well, and so I started making this big oh, deal. Yeah. Out of it. Yeah. Some climbers really dug it. Some people, you know, they. This was where the, a defining moment in their life, and I felt to introduce them in grand fashion and some people really appreciate it and some some rarely did not appreciate it as much yeah yeah there are the odd person yeah and i would i would take on that kind of role at the masters right i would kind of sort of be the announcer yeah yeah and and some liked it better than others but um i don't know who's taking on that role now so are you doing that christian now i am i am set to volunteer this year yes yeah. I'm going no matter what. Um, oh, I don't know about Masters Challenge. I know that I'll probably work the Ascent event okay. this year yeah. in Albuquerque. Yeah. And um, I have not been asked anything about Masters Challenge. Maybe, maybe not. We'll see what happens. You'd be good for it. I, I'd, I'd be good. And you do a but, spectacular uh, job, too. Yeah. It, uh, you know, I, the, for me, the, it, it's interesting because my my pivotal moment for what I wanted to do when I had that wasn't wasn't tree care. It was teaching. It was what I got a, I got uh, asked to teach after I graduated college. Uh, some teachers thought that I'd be good to teach off campus. They had an off campus apprenticeship program happening and they needed a contract instructor. And it was my name was put forward. And so I ended up teaching a plant ID and some chainsaw and pruning. 
uh, like two months, you know, classroom style, you know, in this, they had rented this old shop in this little town, you know, it was a satellite program, you know, and I just thought this is it. Like that was my moment of, and it wasn't this, this I mean, was it's a paid teaching thing? streak. Yeah. This would have been in like 1990, 90, ish, 89, uh-huh. 90. And, uh, Oh no, it might've been more like 91, 92. Anyways, I just was like, no, I was already teaching then. It was 90. I was just like, this is it. This, this is what I want to do. I want to teach. I, it was like this. It wasn't about, I, I wouldn't have cared what I was teaching. It was just teaching. I wanted to be an instructor. And, and the, the most logical thing was teaching uh, a bar culture at the college. Like it just, it hit me. I never thought of it before. It was just like, ba-boom. This is when I spent the next three years applying and being rejected. And I just relentlessly, they basically hired me because I was a big, I wouldn't stop applying. Uh-huh. And uh, that was how I, but, but it wasn't, you know, it was around very much around instruction and, and teaching people and coaching, you know, I really like to coach as well, but, uh, and whatever the topic, you know, and I think that's maybe how for me, my journey evolved into training trainers, right. Mm-hmm. I almost consider that more of, uh, more of what I like to do than teaching trees even. You know, is is teaching people how to teach. <laughs> but anyways, the comp, yeah, such a, I mean, you can, I, I would, could, I, I don't, it's an indebtedness that, and a gratitude I think I can't quite ever repay. You know, the, well, the there's feeling a couple, you get of being. And you probably don't need me to tell you this, but just by paying it forward, you totally pay that, that debt. If you think well, of it that way. Sure. Well, that that's great. I, yeah, I, I maybe so. And it, it's just it's such a great experience to be part of. And I would strongly encourage everyone, you know, I haven't been for the last few years. And, uh, uh, you know, I'm not really since COVID, I guess I haven't been to one. And I almost went this year, but maybe next year. I'm hoping DJ, my son's competing now and hope he'll qualify one of these days. And then uh, yeah. that'll be my I'm, I'm when when he qualifies to compete, that'll be my reunion. And I'll just go and watch and actually no one can loop me into anything because I, while my son's competing, I can't, I have to just watch. <laughs> we'll I've see. never we'll been see. to we'll a competition see. to watch since 1998 was the last competition. Wouldn't it be cool though? To could watch. just watch. <laughs> I don't know. I think, I, cool. think uh, I don't no. know. I don't know. <laughs> it might be like me in a tree job now. It'd be like, you know, when I was doing this, it'd be done way better and faster. That'd be that. Like, <laughs> More done yeah. with less and well, that, that, exactly. yeah. You guys don't know nothing. We used to have to do blah blah blah. That might be yeah, so. Maybe that's why I'm saying. Guy. I'll be I'm that be old that guy, guy in the corner. You guys, when I was doing this, ruin this event. <laughs> Get it to go. Get it to go. <laughs> Get it to go, Schultz. <laughs> that's funny. So, uh, Christian, I'm. You know, I love the way you orate and put things into words and. uh You've always been, I don't know what the word is, a masterful wordsmith, and you express your emotions so articulately. And, and you you know, I really have found you'd always be very in touch with your your yourself. And you can, and, and I'm curious, you know, when you, if you were to try to describe what the trees have, how, the, how being in the trees has affected you personally. Like, it's, like, how could you articulate? Like, we've talked about professionally, and we started touching on, the uh the spiritual side of things but like how would you describe that how trees have affected who christian is 
Wow. It's, it's, it's not, believe it or not, it's not something I've given a lot of thought to. It's just come, after a while, it's just come so natural that when I'm in the air, I am scared at times. Sometimes yeah. I'm really afraid and I have to be very deliberate about one move to another. I'm going to route clockwise, not counterclockwise or how, whatever it is that I'm going to do. I'm not really thinking about, about that. I'm, I'm not thinking about how it's, I'm, I'm already there. I'm not conscious of where it's placed me spiritually when I'm in the moment, especially right, when I approach right, right. and I'm doing a, do, doing a site inspection or something like that. And I'm in position. I'm simply there. It's very meditative. It's deeply spiritual. It defies description for me. I have no words for it. I just don't. I know that I don't judge it and I don't question it whatsoever. And when I'm as a friend and a, and a, uh, you know, a husband and a uncle and all that sort of thing, like, does that influence this being, does, has the trees made affected you in that way? Do you think? Very much so. All of my relatives know that, um, everybody in my life knows where I am and it's not something I, I really, this is the most I've ever, I've talked about it in a long time. After a while, that's just what people associate you with. Yeah. And at a certain point, much like both of you, you're no longer really doing it for yourself. You're sort of doing it. I mean, you're doing it because that's what you have to do. But when you're teaching somebody and when you're sharing and learning from them, when you make it about them, I don't mean to deflect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I know what it, how important it is that we accept but I'm, I make a living by making it about them, uh, the others around me and letting them see and letting them feel. And it's no longer the Christian Michael Schultz show. Well, you know, isn't that, you know, it, it just popped into my mind here when you, as you were saying that, like, you know, it's quite a reflection of almost how trees are really, you know, like trees give so much and, and really don't expect a lot or we don't, they don't. They don't take a lot. They give a lot more than they take, for right. sure. Right. They don't you know? need our input. We just think they do. Yeah. When yeah. we remove our egos, yeah, that's when we kind of yeah. come to the realization they do not need our input. You know, and the, and collectively, they they're so much stronger, and provide so much more to everyone around them. Right. As a as a, a forest is much much more powerful than an individual. Human beings do nothing but, I don't mean to sound negative, but human beings consume and consume and consume. We don't make mm -hmm. oxygen. We don't filter water. Right. We don't ward off. Well, we can ward off depression for each other, but <laughs> trees are no we take and take and take and trees do nothing but give. Yeah, interesting. That'll be $5. Oh, <laughs> What's that doing? Uh, Christian said that's his five dollars. That's his therapy fee. Fee five dollars. Oh. <laughs> well, I don't know how long have we been at Tony. Is are we uh, are a little we, over uh, an hour? We're at a our magic number. You know, it's it, Christian. I don't know what it is. I swear that there must be the clocks must be set wrong or something because or the the Roman uh, the Roman calendar and and uh, clock or keeping time is. Uh, 
it's something about 70 to 80 minutes. It's not 60, you know, like we're, it always seems like we have a natural kind of place just over an hour. It's really weird. Like, 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 you know, I don't know why, but uh, there's something in some sort of circadian rhythm, you know, that is more natural on a 70, 80 minute thing, not a, not a 60 minute thing, you know, (laughs) you know, trying to fit, we've tried to fit so much of life into these uh, cat, uh, not just categories of thinking, or at least I do, but also in these time frames, you know, days, months, years, and minutes, you know, everything's, everything's structured around these, uh, um, constructs, you know, that I, I think if you're, not, if you're not careful, it can really affect, cause I don't think we're really wired that way. And, you know, again, the, the forest doesn't really adhere to those parameters. Neither does nature, right? Like the, the whole, you know, day length and time changes other than equatorial where you have very little day length and time change. Oh, yeah, um, only people do this stuff. so, um, I know we're winding. So we're, I guess what I'm saying is we're winding down, but there's one thing. Yeah. And for those that have, uh, listened to the very end, I, I just, it's one of my most favorite stories to tell about one of my friends. And that is, and people always, I know a lot of people think I'm full of shit when I say this, but I, I can say with great confidence and I can never really prove it. And I don't care because I know it is true. And that is, you know, the, 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 the final docking or parking of that great ship that you, you know, are one of the few people, like, I don't think a lot of people can claim the claim that you can, and I'm not going to steal your thunder because I want you to tell us about that. And you know exactly what I'm talking about. And I'd like it to, I'd like for people to be able to hear you tell that story because I think it is one of the coolest things, Christian. And so I'm putting you on the spot. (laughs) That's all right. When I, when I joined the Navy in 1984 and I was not eligible for Navy SEALs. And so I ended up out in the fleet and just happened to be assigned to USS Missouri, the famous battleship, on which World War II was signed to a close by the Japanese in Pearl Harbor, I'm sorry, in uh, in Tokyo Harbor. And the ship was being brought back into commission and the due date was in early 1986. And we met that goal and in in order to set sail, they needed people in certain qualifications. So they needed people that knew how to steer. They knew they had to have people that knew how to steer. So I was with a group of people that transferred over temporarily to USS New Jersey, a famous battleship as well, to learn how to steer. And so when we all learned how to steer, we would have to do so in a watch cycle when we put to sea. And if you wanted to, you could excel, you could become a master helmsman. So I actually made master helmsman. I was the youngest master helmsman in the history of the ship at um, just uh, at 19 years old. And everybody on board deserved bragging rights on something, but or they they were the first or the only or the youngest or the oldest, and that was that was kind of my claim, and I was quite proud of it. And I spent a lot of time at the, at the helms, steering and steering and steering, and then I learned to steer alongside other ships such as USS Forstall, USS Enterprise, and receiving fuel and mail from these other ships while in motion. Nothing like steering 15 knots through rough seas 
alongside an aircraft carrier. And when she heeled over to port, the entire flight deck would sort of cast a shadow over our ship and then very slowly recoil. (laughs) And I steered in and out of, you had to have a master helmsman at the helm for certain evolutions and steering into and out of port was, was one of them. And so the, there were two other master helmsmen on board when I was there. After I split, there was they added two, and so they had four after I left. But at the time, there was only three of us. And right when we were to steer into Pearl Harbor for the first time since World War II, it was, I don't know how it was decided, but some officer up on deck whipped around to the three of us and said, Schultz, you have the lead on this. And I said, okay. I mean, yes, sir. And I, I took the helm and steered back into Pearl Harbor for the first time since World War II. And, and then I had a couple other big dockings, one of which was one of which was San Francisco. When you when you come in under the Golden Gate Bridge, there are a lot of distractions for a battleship of that size. And some of them were that there were hundreds of people up on the Golden Gate Bridge, and some of them were throwing flowers down to us. And some of them were not throwing flowers down to us. (laughs) Many of those people did not want us there. And and so I got to steer into, I got to steer at Pierside in, in San Francisco. I don't know how long it had been since the ship had visited San Francisco, but we got mixed reviews being there. Some people, again, they, they really didn't want us there. Um, and 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 that's okay. I know that you know we all on board ship had good cause to feel good about what we were doing, and um, so I had any number of really fortunate dockings and steerages that I that to this day I still sometimes I forget about it because I'm the old guy now, dude. I'm I'm 57 years old now. I forget. Oh my gosh, I'm old. Yeah. Was, well, was very yeah. very lucky. Very, very fortunate to come under the guidance and USS USS Missouri was just a, a pivotal moment for all of us. I still belong to an association and a Facebook page and I'm in touch with a lot of my old shipmates. Nice. Well, I have no doubt. And, and uh, I, I just feel lucky to know you, to know someone that did that. Like it, you know, it, it's just, it's really cool. And I've been on, I've been to Pearl Harbor, the memorial, you know, that same trip where I saw the surfboard championships, we went there and spent the day, you know, and I've been on the boat and uh, I already knew this about, you know, you had told me that. So it was just a whole different meaning, you know, knowing like, and that, you know, it's just holy crap. Cause it, it, it's not that there's nothing to be, uh, it's a magnificent uh, vessel to say the least. <laughs> it is. Yeah, she's my old girlfriend. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and it's interesting because, you know, we talk about, you know, other vocations having, you know, not being the same. But I think anyone that had a hand in building that ship or piloting it or being a part of it, you know, there's there's a there's something else that forms there, too. You know, that 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 I think is akin to the the feeling that some of us get being arborists for uh, our whole lives, you know. Um, so I think it does happen in other, in other ways and places and other types of construction, you know, where people have that, that spiritual type of feeling that goes with doing something that you have pride in 
and purpose in, you know, like there's a, there's a real power in that. Well, Tony, Christian, it's been fun. It's been a great, uh, great session. Uh, there, I, I'm just, uh, I feel so lucky and blessed every time we do one of these, like they just keep getting better, Tony. And Christian, I'm so glad that you, uh, you made it, you made it. And, and we, we got to do this thing because I knew it was going to be a good one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, finally. And thanks so much for this opportunity. You're welcome.